Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. Brian Garfield, who died on December 29, 2018, one month shy of his 80th birthday, wrote at least 65 novels, most of them westerns, three collections of short stories, three books of nonfiction, and several works for film and television. He is best known for the revenge novel Death Wish, which became a hit movie starring Charles Bronson in 1974, and Hopscotch, which also became a successful film with Walter Matthau and Glenda Jackson in 1980. His Western films, A Complete Guide, is still the definitive work on the subject. In 1983, Richard A. Lupoff, Lawrence Davidson, and I sat down with Brian Garfield to talk about his career. An extremely prolific writer at the time of the interview, and only in his early 40s, Brian Garfield's output declined precipitously afterward, with only two novels and one nonfiction book published over the final 35 years of his life. This program is dedicated to the memory of Patricia Lupoff, who was also present at the interview. You began first writing westerns. Yeah, I lived in Arizona, grew up there, was surrounded by resident writers in the community, one of whom was Fred Glidden, who wrote westerns under the name of Luke Short. Another was Nelson Nye, who was still reasonably active in the field. Walt Coburn, who had a pulp magazine named after him, lived there. And the fellow who drew and wrote the Red Rider comic strip, Fred Harmon, that was his name, lived in southern Arizona. I sort of met all these people rather casually, mostly at parties that my mother threw. She's a painter, and she used to do the covers for Saturday Review when it was called Saturday Review of Literature. We usually, once a week, had a writer around the house having his portrait painted. And I suppose that convinced me that writing was, in fact, a legitimate way to make a living, particularly since I couldn't draw. <laughs> My father was an architect. I could the drawing either side of the family you had to draw to follow in anybody's footsteps and I couldn't do it. The Westerns came out of being a not particularly good horseman, but I, I rode horse shows and rodeos and stuff like that when I was 15 or 16. And as a subject for experimentation in the literary arts by a teenage kid, Westerns seemed a fairly simple art form to emulate. Did any of these people give you any kind of guidance? Yeah, particularly uh, Luke Short, Fred Glidden. He was a marvelous guy. He was willing to read the, the claptrap that I was writing at the age of 12 or 14. And then, you know, I was sending these things off to pulp magazines. They were short stories. And the pulps were dying at a great rate in the 1950s. And every time I'd send a, a story off, the magazine would die, you know. And I, I began to get quite paranoid about this and assume that it was my fault that these magazines were folding. But Fred was, was about the only professional writer who was actually willing to look at this junk of mine and, and explain to me with a straight face what I was doing wrong and how I could do it right and, you know, what some of the principles were. One of the things he taught me about Westerns was that 
in his estimation, the only story that worked properly as a Western was a story that you could take out of its Western trappings and reset somewhere else. Put it in the future and make it science fiction, or put it in the city and make it urban. His point was, of course, that, that the relationships between the characters are what make a story, and the, the cowboy hat is, is not essential to that. I never sold a story to the pulps. The first thing I sold was a novel, which was published in hardcover. I was 18. <laughs> I'd never sold a short story until well, five or six years after that. And the only reason then was that I was asked to do a short story for an anthology by mm -hmm. the Western writers. And those are unpaid. You don't think of that as, as selling a story. But either just before or just after the anthology was published, the story was then bought by, I think it was a Toronto Star Weekly or something. That was my first periodical publication other than book reviews and things like that. That first book would have been Range Justice, yeah. Avalon. <laughs> yep. <laughs> $250. <laughs> Flat fee. <laughs> you published quite a few books with Avalon. Well, they were the only people that would buy them, you see. My agent would start almost every one of those books with the paperback original outfits. You know, the, the going price then for a, a paperback ranged downward from the $5,000 that Ballantyne was paying for originals. Fawcett Gold Medal was probably paying about half that, and the rest of them were a thousand or less. After you'd worked your way all the way down through those paperback outfits and been rejected by all of them, you ended up either at, at Avalon Books or at another one that had a very similar name to that. Arcadia? Yeah, Arcadia yeah. House. That was it. Wonderful and, outfit. And they all paid 250 or 300 per book, you see. The irony in my case was that just about every one of those books of mine that was then published by Boragine Hardcover eventually ended up being reprinted by the very soft cover houses that had turned them down originally. I don't know why. Maybe they changed editors or something. No, Ace didn't change editors. Walheim was the editor there all, all through that period. What were the bylines you used on these books? I've had nine pen names at one time or another, none of which I use anymore. But let's see. The first pen name I used was Frank Wynn. My middle name is Wynn, W-Y-N-N-E. And then I did another variation on that, which was Brian Wynn. And then I did Frank O'Brien. <laughs> and then, then branched out a little farther to Bennett Garland, but I was still sticking to the initials. Later on, let's see, I did a couple of books under house names. In one case, The Estate of a Writer Who Died. That was a Jonas Ward book. I did one of the Buchanan novels. And I did a novel under the name of Alex Hawk, which was a house name that belonged to a publisher. And I've used John Ives on a couple of novels. They, they were fairly recent in the late 70s. They were thrillers. Drew Mallory on one novel in the middle 70s. I don't remember any others, but there may have been one okay, or two. That's, that's <laughs> our, our completest uh, collector listeners yeah. will have to start running around that's now. Right, and they'll yeah. say, well, now, which of the Jonas yeah. Wards, etc.? Mine was called Buchanan's Gun, and it was the first B Buchanan novel to be written and published after the death of William Ard, who had written all of the original Jonas Ward books. And after I did that one... Bill Cox took over the series, and he has now done, I think, about 20 of them. Todd Hunter Ballard was employed to write one of them, but I'm not sure he actually wrote it. Ballard also f did the second Alex Hawk novel. I did the first one. Then there was another softcover publisher, which I think is now out of business, Universal Publishing. They published something called Award Books. The editor's name was Eiler Jacobson. He was fondly remembered by a lot of people in the field. <laughs> uh, he did a lot of other things in his career. Yes, he did. You know, he published a lot of softcore porn and other things. I remember being taken to lunch by him. He, he invited, you know, when a publisher invites a writer to lunch, it's, it's a big deal because, you know, you get to put on a necktie and go to a really respectable restaurant <laughs> and get somebody else to pay for it. 
in this case, I showed up at the wherever their offices were, someplace in midtown Manhattan, with my necktie and my jacket on and all that sort of thing. And we went down to the company commissary in the building and not on the ground floor and got sandwiches that were wrapped in waxed paper. <laughs> not quite out of a machine, but it was pretty close to that, you know. And iced tea in a plastic cup. And that, that, was, that was being taken to lunch by Universal Publishing. But he decided he was going to inaugurate a line of Westerns. And he asked me if I would do the first one. And again, I did the first one and Ballard did the second one. I don't know why it worked out that way so often. But in my case, I had, I had absolutely run dry. It was a particular summer when I'd been... I don't know, I'd been working on something all summer, which then proved to be impossible to continue with. It was It's a book that I'm still working on now, but every time I get ready to start, do the final draft of this book, somebody else publishes it. It's a nonfiction subject, and they always do it wrong, and so they always disappear without a trace. Maybe next time I'll get mine done before somebody else publishes it, you know? The heat has to die now. In any, in any case, that summer, I just couldn't think of a Western plot because it had been a long time since I'd written a Western, and I figured I had written all my Westerns then. This was, in fact, long before I gave up writing Westerns. I wrote a lot of them after that, but I couldn't think of a, of a story that I hadn't done before. And it suddenly occurred to me that since this was going to be done under a pen name for a publishing house that didn't sell books any place where anybody I respected would buy them, <laughs> it didn't matter whether I did anything original. And I ripped off one of my own old books. I used exactly the same plot, chapter by chapter. I changed the names of the characters, and I changed the background from cattle to mining. But everything else in the story was identical, right down to a good deal of the dialogue. I just you flipped pages and stole from myself. <laughs> Never did that before or since, but I needed the thousand dollars then. Yeah, <laughs> really, well. Rather desperately, the rent was due. You know, in your relationship with Ace and Don Walheim in 1964, you wrote a book called Mister Sixgun, which was the first of your Jeremy Six books. Yeah, I wrote that while living on the left bank in Paris, much to the amusement of the French press. How long did you keep up the Jeremy Six books, and why did you lose interest in them? I don't know why I wrote as many as I did. I've never before or since attempted a series about the same character. You know, the first one wasn't intended to be a series book. It was just another Western. I think it was Don Walheim who asked me to continue the character because Don thought that this character was rather like the, the Matt Dillon character in Gunsmoke, you know, and uh, he wanted a series that would compete with, with the, the TV tie-in novels that somebody else was publishing. The problem with a series of any kind for me is the fact that the, the character becomes stuck. The character becomes fixed in granite and yeah. cannot, cannot really change very much. He can grow slowly through the course of the series. But there really isn't much, particularly in a Western series. I mean, you're, you're stuck with, with so many formulaic, rigid restrictions upon you know what you want to do anyway. I think I must have needed the money a lot because I, I, I got bored with that character after two or three novels. Actually... Almost the entire supporting cast of characters in that book was drawn from my first novel way back, you know, years earlier, uh, and was set in the same town where my first novel was set. So in a sense, the eight novels in that Jeremy Six series were all sequels to the first novel I ever wrote. There was, in addition, a final novel in the Jeremy Six series that was not written by me. It was published by the same publishers, by Ace Books. There had been some confusion as to who had the rights to that series, me or the publisher. We finally ironed it out, and the book was withdrawn. It had been written by Dean McGoey, and he didn't know that there was any conflict about 
you know, authorship or anything. You know, it wasn't his fault. I mean, he was simply offered the job of writing the book and, and given some money, and, and he went and did so. But it came as something of a shock to me when I found a book on a book stand one day because it had my name on it and my characters in it, and I hadn't written it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but this was not Brian Garfield. This was Brian Wynn. I only used that name for that series of novels. Yeah, the series got to be very difficult. I Finally, I, I would do things like take the character out of his environment, send him down to Mexico, or do anything just, just to, to change the coloration. In some of the reference books, they point out a book published by Macmillan in 1962 called The Lawbringers as your first quote-unquote serious Western. I had met an old guy by the name of Bert Mossman, who, in his youth, had been the, the, the founder and first captain of the Arizona Rangers. And he lived until the middle 60s on a ranch in New Mexico. And, you know, he was your, your sort of basic frontier, Barry Goldwater-style cowboy. I didn't think of it as a Western as much as I thought of it as a biography. It was a novel, but it was, it was, a, it was his life, really, or, or a segment of his life. And it was more or less as he had told it to me. I, I've done that several times, most recently in a book called The Paladin, where I'm doing a novel, but it's almost nonfiction in the sense that I'm doing the story as it was told to me by somebody else. How much truth he's telling me, I'm not responsible for, and I don't always know. And I think that Mossman had a rather glorified sense of, of uh, his own importance in the scheme of things, but he certainly was a, an interesting character. He brought a ruthless kind of justice to the frontier in his day. This, this all took place around the turn of the century. This was not back in, in the Indian fighting days, but it was 1902, 1903, along in there. Arizona was not yet a state and had become a kind of hideout for all the outlaws who had been shooed out of the rest of the states in the West. And there really wasn't any law enforcement in Arizona then. You know, there were a few federal marshals there, but contrary to the image that's come down from all the Wyatt Earp hoopla, the fact is that federal marshals in the frontier were basically there to collect taxes. You know, there, there weren't any Matt Dillons who enforced the law in, in that sense. There were sheriffs, but most of them were bought and paid for by whatever interests happened to run that county. You know, it was thought of as a wave of outlawry. In fact, the population of Arizona was so slender in 1902 that, that a wave of outlawry could be anything as small as, you know, two robberies in, in a year. But Mossman and his small group, they did a TV series called 26 Men. It was a syndicated series back in the, in the 50s about the Arizona Rangers, insisting that there had been 26 of them. In fact, there were only 12. I, I don't know why the, the television people decided to to add to the, tr the crew because they didn't have enough budget to hire 26 riders anyway. <laughs> Usually there were only about three people in, in the film. You know. A friend of mine, an actor, he was doing a very low-budget play which took place in a department store in New York, Stearns, which is now closed. And it was a holiday season play and he and his friends had been hired to do this performance. And my friend Jim, who later on went on to star in some off-Broadway shows, was then on his uppers. <laughs> his job was to come in and say to the other two guys on the stage, we're here, and then to turn and say to the wings, you other 37 thieves stay out there and hold the horses. That's <laughs> what I think of as low budget. The real Arizona Rangers had that kind of a budget too. Well, they hanged a lot of people without benefit of trial. There really was a kind of a vigilante lynch law approach to the, what they thought of as a major crime problem. I think I was 21 or 22 when I wrote that book, and I was very enamored of this kind of thing. It was a very attractive fantasy. By the time I came to writing Death Wish, I think I changed my mind a lot. 
One of the things that kind of amuses me, particularly after having written so many Westerns that I'm going to have to do penance for, is that I have never come across any reliable evidence that there ever was a stand-up gunfight in the Old West. I mean, where, where two guys actually came down the street yeah. facing each other and, you know, tried to see which one of them could draw faster. Uh, as far as I know, that never happened. There were a couple of occasions when when a guy would come in a door and take another one by surprise, and both of them would be just totally surprised to see each other. And then they would all of a sudden go reaching for their guns, and, and, and usually this involved about five minutes of fumbling and, and dropping things and so forth. The celebrated gambler Luke Short was involved in one of those, uh, where he, he encountered a guy coming in a saloon door or going out a saloon door, and they, they had vowed to kill each other. And, and so there was a lot of reaching for guns, and finally, Luke Short blew the guy's thumb off by accident. <laughs> his first shot, once he'd lost his thumb, he didn't think fast enough to use the other hand to cock his single-action revolver. So he stood there in a state of what amounted to being totally unarmed, while Luke Short proceeded methodically to shoot him to pieces. But that I don't think of as a quick-draw gunfight. And I, I have never found any evidence that there actually was... Well, in the first place, the equipment made it impossible. You know, the, the, the holsters that those people carried guns in were made out of glove leather for the most part. And, and to get the gun out was, you know, required a great deal of, of manipulation, you know. I think that high noon kind of duel, it probably came about as a sort of Hollywood invention that was inspired partly by the tradition of the duel, you know, which does have its rigid formal rules. But as far as I know, the, 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 the shootings that took place in the West were mostly either in the back or under the table or whoever saw the other guy first, they, they weren't prearranged. You wrote for Donald Walheim. A lot of science fiction people wrote for Donald Walheim, Ace Doubles, and you wrote westerns for him. Uh, what's interesting is that the science fiction people were very dissatisfied with Walheim as editor, and the western people loved Walheim as editor. Why do you think that was? Well, I think it's because Don was a science fiction writer himself and therefore took to actively editing science fiction manuscripts as they came in, whereas he was not a Western writer, and his tendency with Westerns was simply to buy them or not buy them. But if he bought them, he didn't seem to edit them. I mean, he didn't make major changes in them. There was one case, a book of mine, that, in fact, it was the first novel, it was Range Justice, and it was the first thing of mine that he bought, and he, he had somebody abridge it. I don't think he did the editing himself, but it, it was cut and published in a, in a abbreviated version in paperback. In fact, the, the full-length version has never been published in paperback, but that's no great loss to the world, I'm sure. But Don really, I, I don't think, took much interest in, in editing Westerns because he didn't write them. Don told me that he did have one Western writer, and he never told me the name. This guy always started writing at mealtimes because he would promise himself, I'll have lunch <laughs> right after I get started, or dinner, or midnight snack, or whatever. Most of the writers I could tell you about usually do that with booze rather well, than food. Okay. In, in this case, according to Don, the westerns that this fellow wrote always opened with a meal. And there would always be pages of descriptions of food, following which, you know, okay, you know, the truck wagon rolls away and the story begins. And Don says, all I ever had to do with this fellow's manuscripts was look through the first few pages, as soon as they put down their knives and forks, the story begins, and I would throw away the part of the manuscript up to that point, because Western readers didn't care to read about the meals, and I never had to touch anything else in this guy's work. Well, it's like, we used to have a, a group of, a small group of writers, included Larry Block and Don Westlake, 
uh, and we called ourselves Hack, Henry's active clients. Our agent, needless to say, was named Henry. He's still your agent, Dick, I understand. Yes. We had uh, very few requirements for membership in, in the group, and the purpose of this group was to do absolutely nothing, by the way. Uh, we, we were the one writer's organization that did not give awards, did not charge dues, did not have dinners, didn't do anything at all. And the, the requirements for membership were that you had to have written and published at least 50 novels. You had to submit a list of the titles of those novels. And if you got it right, you were not eligible. And you had to have in your files a letter from an editor whom we all knew by the name of Charles N. Heckelman. And this letter had to, to say somewhere in, in the body of its language, this manuscript needs fleshing out. Charlie was for years, he was an editor at New American Library Signet Books, and he was an editor, he was the editor, the president of Monarch Books, uh, an operation in the late 50s and early 60s that published westerns and sort of shabby detective stories and things like that. He then went to work for a very respectable house, I think it was Cole's Publishing or something, and, and we lost touch with him. The last I heard of him, he was retired and living in Florida, but... Uh, but Charlie, really, his his editing of a manuscript always consisted of telling the writer to flesh it out. <laughs> that was, you know, that covered everything. Let's jump over to 1971 for a second. You wrote a book called The Last Hard Men, which was made into a film. Actually, I wrote a book called Gun Down, which was made into a film that had about 18 titles. But the last title, the title under which it was released, was The Last Hard Men, and then they put that title on the reissue of the book. But okay, go go ahead. <laughs> There's five-year difference between the time you wrote the book and the time the movie was made. Was this your first? My second film. The book was written before Death Wish. The film came out after Death Wish. Did you have any input? Yeah, it was, it was a rather strange situation. The, the screenplay was based on a novel of mine. It was not written by me. It was written by Gurdon Trueblood. And he was in Europe doing another picture at the time The Last Hard Men was shot. And the director was Andy McLaughlin. Andrew V. McLaughlin, who was the son of, of the actor Victor McLaughlin. Well, he'd started as John Ford's assistant, and he had directed a number of John Wayne pictures and so forth, including some good movies. He did Shenandoah with Jimmy Stewart, for example. Andy and the producers seemed to feel that the problem of the screenplay was that it was too faithful to the novel. And I ended up, in a sort of informal way, working on the set to abridge the screenplay. It wasn't so much rewriting as just cutting lines because the screenwriter had, in fact, liked the novel too much, and he had included too many relatively long speeches from the novel, which don't really fit in an action western. And we had to find ways to bring long paragraphs down to single words or short sentences. And so, yeah, I did some, I wouldn't call it writing, I did a lot of blue penciling on the screenplay of that picture, and, and it was the first time I'd worked on a movie set as anything other than an, than an extra, so that was a lot of fun. In fact, I'd been an extra in an Andy McLaughlin picture about 15 years earlier, and it was kind of fun to, to meet the great man on a different level the second time. You know, <laughs> He had absolutely no memory of the, of the first meeting, but I did. <laughs> what was the first picture, and we'll look for you on late-night TV? I don't think I'm in it. I've, I've seen it on... It's McClintock. It's, it's uh -huh. that, that comedy with, with Wayne and, and Maureen O'Hara, and I was in the scene where everybody falls down the mudslide. I mean, they, they got the whole town of Tucson in that scene. Last Hard Men was one of your last Westerns until we get to Wild Times in 1978. Yeah, there was one intervening book, and if I can, one intervening Western, it's called Tripwire. 
if I had to make a list right now of all of my books in the order of likelihood that they might be filmed, the one I would put at the bottom of that list is Tripwire, because A, it's a Western, and nobody's making Westerns these days, and B, it has a black hero, and black heroes don't seem to be in fashion this year. However, thanks to Mr. T, <laughs> Tripwire will soon be on your living room screens. <laughs> That's wonderful. With Mr. T in it? With no. Mr. T, really? yeah. Like Wendell Mays is writing the screenplay. He wrote the screenplay of Death Wish, so apparently uh, Lorimar, which is producing this thing, thinks of us as a good combo. I always thought it should be filmed. It's a cinematic kind of thing. It's just a couple of characters out in the desert, you know. It's a guy and a little girl. How they come to, to stop distrusting each other after a long time. I think it should be on in the fall of the coming year, fall of 84. Your longest and most involved Western is a book called Wild Times, which seems to be kind of a takeoff on the life of Buffalo Bill Cody. Where did the idea for that emerge? And tell a little about its history. Wild Times is, is essentially, to me, it's, it's the story of the West. It's, it's couched in, in terms of, of a narrative by and about the man who invents the Wild West show. That man was not Buffalo Bill Cody, and the character in the book is mainly not based on, on Cody. The character is mainly based on Doc Carver, who was a, a marksman, a shooting expert, shooting contest winner, who formed the first Wild West show and took it out on the road and then went into partnership with Buffalo Bill Cody. And then their partnership dissolved rather quickly because both of them wanted the center of the arena to, the, to himself. You know. And uh, the two of them went their separate ways, but Carver's show actually outlasted Cody's. He was still running in the 1920s, in, the, in his way, well up in his 70s, and still doing a lot of these, these trick shooting from the back of a horse stunts and that sort of thing. What inspired the book was a chance meeting when I was probably 14, maybe 15, at a county fair in Arizona with a fellow who was going around selling and promoting uh, rifles for the manufacturer. And I don't know if they still do this today, but in those days, the, the, the arms manufacturers had these uh, salesmen who were trick shot experts who would go around to, to things like rodeos and county fairs and so forth and display the magnificence of the weapons that they were selling by showing all the tricks you could do with them. And this, this old man's name was George Bonney, and he had been a trick shot expert, and he'd been making his living at that in, in vaudeville and, and working for, you know, all of these arms manufacturers for many years. He was quite old. I guess he was up in, well up in his 80s and, and nearly totally deaf. But he could still do just absolutely fantastic tricks. He just had, he had a little twenty-two auto-loading rifle. One of the th you know, it would eject its empty shells up and forward, and he would shoot the empty shells as they came out of the rifle. I don't know how many of your listeners may be familiar with the proportions of, of an empty twenty-two cartridge case, but it's about half an inch long and a quarter of an inch in diameter. It's a very tiny thing to shoot while it's flying through the air. I began to ask him, well, how do you do that? I mean, which is what any kid is going to ask somebody who's doing that. And he was courteous enough to explain it to all of us, that there was something of a trick to it. And that is that you, you waited until it reached the apex of its arc flying through the air. And when it was not quite rising anymore and not quite beginning to fall, that was when you shot, because that was when it was virtually standing still. And also, as he pointed out, the target was only about two feet away. Nevertheless, exactly. <laughs> you know, I tried it a lot, and I know a lot of other people have tried it a lot, and it is not easy. 
But he was the character who, who just kept coming back to my mind year after year. The, the guy who, you know, he, he wasn't a killer. He wasn't a gunfighter. And yet, you know, he, he, was, he was one of these Western characters with a gun in his hand who created that whole image that we had of the West. And, and later, years later, 20 or 30 years later, I was reading a biography of Doc Carver that was published, I guess, back in the 50s possibly in the 60s. And I hadn't known much about Carver before, but the fact that he had invented the Wild West show just suddenly clicked in my mind and the idea of this, this expert shooter who sort of personifies the Western myth without actually being a gunslinger at all. I mean, this was a guy who never got in a gunfight. Wild Times was turned into a film. Did you have anything to do with doing that? Yeah, I had some to do with it. I, I didn't really like the end result. I don't think many people did. It has a couple of set-piece scenes in it that I liked. The Wild West show I thought was filmed very well. It was done as a miniseries, and it was done independently. It was not a network miniseries. It was Metro Media. It was uh, syndicated. The producers, not the producers personally, but the production company, Metro Media, decided at the very last minute, just before shooting started, that this six-hour miniseries was going to be a four-hour miniseries. The result was that the screenwriter, who was a friend of mine, Don Balick, and has his hands full, and particularly had his hands full at that time because he was the head writer on Little House on the Prairie, and he was, you know, this, that, and the other. And he didn't have time to go back and do a rewrite in two days of the six-hour screenplay. Uh, <laughs> and I was filming Hopscotch at the time, which was a film on which I was both the screenwriter and one of the producers, and I really was sort of stuck with Hopscotch, not in the sense that I didn't like doing it. I, I loved making that picture, but in the sense that I couldn't get away from it to work on Wild Times. Wild Times, therefore, was not so much rewritten as butchered by its producers and various other people who came running on the lot at the last minute, and in fact, a lot of this... Uh, cutting and abridging was done during the filming. The result was a very disjointed and, and, and hasty piece of work, I think. I did have some voice in, in the way it was cast. I picked a lot of the actors for it. I chose deliberately Sam Elliott to play the lead because I thought he was one of the few young actors we had out here at the time who were you know, sort of larger than life and had that Gary Cooper quality that, that one looks for in a Western hero. I inspired the producers to hire actors like Ben Johnson and Harry Carey Jr. and some of the other John Ford stock company veterans simply because I had admired their work in so many pictures and I wanted to meet these guys, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and I did, and that was fun. I, I managed to spend some time on the set while the Hopscotch Company was, you know, moving from one country to another. It, it was a strange experience because I, I don't know too many people who've had two films actually start shooting on the same day. Now, I didn't like the Wild Times film all that much, but there were things about it that I liked, and under the circumstances of its making, I don't think it was anything to be ashamed of. Before we move away from the Westerns, I was wondering if you had any ideas, any opinions as to why the Westerns are in such trouble right now, why the traditional Western is just about dead, the field is locked in between... Uh, Western porn and Louis L'Amour, and that's about it. I have a lot of ideas. I'm not sure any of them is valid. I think I don't know is probably the best answer, but I will venture a few guesses. I think it's harder for us to believe in the kind of hero that we used to believe in, the individual who can come up, you know, come in and, and, and almost like a messiah can save all the little people from the, the big ugly land grabber. That was, you know, the image of the Western from William S. Hart through 
Alan Ladd and Shane, anyway, you know, the, the kind of Gary Cooper image that we used to have of the American hero has pretty much been corrupted by our own sense of our own corruption. I think we're more cynical than we used to be, and, and it's, you know, it's harder for us to really believe in, in the kind of aspirations that we believed in 30 or 40 years ago. I don't think the society, in fact, is any more corrupt now than it was then. I think that our image of it is more so. You know, we've become much more urbanized. When I was a kid in, in the 40s and 50s, we still had an agrarian sense of ourselves as a nation. I think basically we thought of ourselves as a nation of farmers and cowboys, and we had a few cities here and there. Now I think we, we, we do have this, this sort of urbanized picture of ourselves, and, and the, the American hero is more likely to be a cop or a private eye or even an astronaut than a man on a horse. You know, The man on the horse is just too far removed from us in terms of our reality now. I'd like to see the Western come back, but I don't think it's ever going to come back in the form that we saw it in before. I think that was just too simple. It was too simple-minded. You know, by the same token, there are a lot of other forms of, of formula fiction that aren't going to come back either, and we're not going to miss them that much. You know, the foreign legion adventures in their posts in the Sahara Desert, for example, we're not likely to have too many of them, and nobody's been crying about their absence, you know. Let's move on to some of your other work. Brian Garfield is best known in the general public as the author of Death Wish, and strangely enough, those people I've talked to have said, Death Wish, you're going to be interviewing this fascist who's into, <laughs> who's into vigilanteism because of the Bronson movie. Yeah, after that movie came out, I started getting mail addressed to Dear Fascist Pig. <laughs> 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 I've been doing penance ever since. I've been trying to live that picture down. I did not write the movie. I happen to know the guy who did, Wendell Mays. He's a very good writer. But he wrote the script that the producers wanted. He wrote, the, he wrote the script that Charles Bronson wanted. The picture was initially intended as a vehicle for Jack Lemmon and would logically have been one had it been done as the book was done, as a story about a rather confused, middle-aged, middle-class New Yorker who is radicalized by a crime that takes place to his family and who goes crazy, really. He enters a moment of rage and never comes out of it. And the point I was trying to make in the book was the fact that vigilante justice, you know, the idea of taking the law into your own hands, is a reasonably, if not wonderfully, attractive fantasy that we've all shared, but that when you put it into practice, it really doesn't work too well, and that's why we do have a system, no matter how poorly it may work. The end of the book showed our hero out in the streets shooting unarmed teenagers on suspicion, you know, the fact that a kid is carrying a television set is not necessarily proof that he stole it, and even if it were, is that a capital crime? These are questions that the character didn't choose to answer. He just shot the kid. And that, to me, was the inevitable kind of, of end to which this kind of thing goes. The movie very much simplified that story and made this character into a, a hero on a white horse who comes in to clean up New York City with his little thirty-two caliber revolver, I think it was, that they armed him with which is a silly thing to arm Charles Bronson with. <laughs> At least they should have given him the same kind of magnum that Clint Eastwood uses, you know. But uh, in any case, uh, the, the picture certainly had a, had a remarkable effect on audiences. I, I was out of the country at the time it was released. I was in Africa doing some research on a book, and it was, it was very strange because that was the same summer when Nixon resigned, and all of these traumatic things happened in the world, and I was so far out in the Serengeti that I didn't even know about these things until weeks later. 
it's it's strange to come back to the real world and and, and find out you know that, that it's changed under you. Yeah. you know? But uh, I had seen the picture in an, an advanced screening before I'd left the United States, and my agent and I and several other people were there, and we we walked out and said to one another, almost five people in the same voice and the same breath at the same time. Well, it's really a rotten piece of junk, but it's probably going to make a lot of money. And that was, you know, none of us thought anything special. It was another Charles Bronson action movie. It was only when I returned to the States that, you know, and there were articles, you know, two-page articles in Time magazine about it and all that sort of thing, that I began to understand that this thing had become a sociological issue rather than an action story. It certainly touched the nerve. Yeah, the novel had a kind of sociological intention, but when I saw the film, it didn't give me that sense. But then yeah. that's because I was coming at it from the point of view of the novel, which had carried the argument further than the movie carried it. So it seemed to me that the movie wasn't arguing at all. It was just presenting a story. I later had to take my father-in-law to see it because he'd never seen it. And he was visiting this country from England, and I took him to see it in the only place it was playing at the time, which was a theater in Times Square. You know, every time Bronson would take out his gun and kill somebody, they'd all leap to their feet and yell, <laughs> Yeah, kill that mother! You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's interesting, though, that they identified with Bronson, not with oh, yes. his victim. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think most everybody who isn't, in fact, a mugger identifies, with, <laughs> you know, with anybody who's, who's out there doing the man. It's kind of an amusing experience in any number of ways, as you can imagine, but it was also distressing. What about Death Wish 2? <laughs> well, there's a long story behind that, but I, I won't bore you with all of it. But the producers who set out to make that picture did not originally intend to make the picture. They intended to advertise the fact that they were going to make the picture for various reasons of their own. They did not own the rights. They hadn't made any deals with the actor, the director, or me, and... It ended up that, that Dino De Laurentiis, who had produced Death Wish, the first picture, his staff got in touch with me, and between us, we sort of forced them to make the movie because we wanted to get paid. You know, they had, had taken out all these ads using our names, and it happened at the time that Bronson had nothing else to do, you know, for those six weeks or whatever it was, and Michael Winner, who directed it, he directed both of them, in fact, apparently had nothing else to do or nothing better to do. And they made the picture very quickly. I don't know how much it cost them, but I saw it, unfortunately. It was, it's one of my candidates for the worst movie of all time. <laughs> I had nothing to do with it, uh, except I, I demanded money and got it, you know. But uh, it, I had written a sequel, in fact. It's called Death Sentence. It's a novel. But the film Death Wish 2 is not based on it. You worked on the movie Hopscotch, which is a uh, hop, skip, and a jump away from, <laughs> from Death Wish, uh -huh. certainly. Was the novel a comedy also? No. The novel is a thriller with exactly the same plot that the film has and the same characters. But I set out to make make a film out of that book before I'd finished writing the book. I didn't want the same thing to happen to Hopscotch as had happened to Death Wish, and so I formed a little company in partnership with a few friends of mine who had some money. The purpose of this company was to produce films, beginning with Hopscotch, and so we, we bought the rights from ourselves, as it were, and hired a writer-director to collaborate with me on the screenplay and direct the picture. This was Brian Forbes, who had done The L-Shaped Room and King Rat and any number of other what I thought were good movies. That's why we hired him. And Brian, in his initial reading of the manuscript of the novel, which had not yet been published, 
pointed out to me that this was a story about a man who was motivated by his sense of humor, and why didn't we extract some more comedy from it than there was in the novel? And it was a superb idea, because as soon as that idea entered the, the picture, the whole story became a lot more lively, I think. We wrote it without any particular actor in mind, but when we'd finished writing the first draft of the screenplay, it was immediately obvious that Walter Matthau was the first choice for it. We offered it to Walter, and I now must mention that we're talking 1974, and Walter didn't like the script, and that was the end of that. Two years later, we made a deal on the picture, the first deal that had been offered to us, with Warren Beatty, and Warren was going to produce the picture and star in it. This required some rather significant rewriting for a number of reasons, one of which is that Warren is much younger, both in years and in appearance, than the character that I'd had in mind. Another is that Warren really had the feeling that he wanted to conceal somewhere inside this comedy a much stronger political message than I had had in mind when I wrote the story. I mean, as far as, it wasn't a political novel, as far as I was concerned. It was, it was an entertainment. Warren decided to make it a statement about the CIA. So we had quite a few arguments about <laughs> the extent to which one ought to make a film as a mouthpiece for one's political notions. I know there are people who do it well. Costa Gavras is one, but I'm not in that bag, and I prefer to keep my politics and my entertainment separated. Warren disappeared from the project after paying a, an enormous forfeiture fee for not doing the film. So our investors got their money back and then some. So we, we made a profit on the picture before it was made, which was nice. Then a couple of more years went by, and we signed a deal with Cliff Robertson to do the picture. And Cliff then blew the whistle on David Beagleman, and we couldn't, we and he together couldn't get arrested because nobody would finance the picture, which in retrospect was a good thing just because of the way the picture finally worked out. But I, I'm sorry that it happened that way because I like Cliff. I think he's a good actor, and I think, you know, he was the victim of a very strange injustice. I was at MGM Studios the other day, and the most prominent parking slot on the lot, right in front of the new producer's building, is labeled David Beagle. In the same town where Cliff Robertson has trouble getting work, I find that ironic to say the least. But anyway, uh, Hopscotch then languished for another couple of years, and by this point we had been turned down by every studio in the Western world, I think. We, we tried all the studios in, in Hollywood, London, Paris, Rome. They all said the same thing, the accepted wisdom of the movie world. Spy movies are out. If you're not making a James Bond picture, forget it. Nobody wants to see spy pictures. And I kept saying, it's not a spy picture, it's a comedy. It's just, it's just you know, it's, it's, it's a movie for fun. It's not supposed to be, you know, the spy who went back into the cold or something. Finally, a crazy man by the name of Eli Landau, who delights in making pictures that everybody says can't be made, like, for instance, The Pawnbroker and Long, Long Day's Journey Into Night, decided that uh, he would take over the project and raise the financing by going to his friends who owned movie theaters and raising the money from them individually, 10000 from this screen and 15000 from that screen and so forth, and he did so. And he called in a debt. He'd given Walter Matthau his first acting job on live television back in New York on Channel 13 in the 1950s. And he called Walter and he said, I know you read this a long time ago, but they've changed the script a lot. I want you to read it again and I want you to make the movie. 
And Walter came in and said, I'm not making the movie just because you say you want me to make the movie. And he said, I don't like the screenplay, but I like the novel. And if we can do another script, I'll do the picture. At this point, Brian Forbes was doing something else. He couldn't wait six years. So I actually wrote the final draft of the, of the, of the script by myself under the aegis of Ronald Neem, who directed the picture. That was a wonderful experience because Ronnie is... Either I or somebody else really ought to, to go to Ronnie and write a book with him about his life in the movie business. Ronnie was Alfred Hitchcock's cameraman on silent movies, up through and including blackmail. And he then became a cameraman, screenwriter, and producer, in that order, I believe, working with first with Noel Coward and then with David Lean on some rather spectacular movies. I mean, Ronnie has British Academy Awards for photographing and writing such films as Great Expectations, the one with John Mills, the David Lean version. And he then started directing pictures in the 1950s, some of which include Tunes of Glory, uh, The Horse's Mouth, later on did Prime of Miss Jean Brody. I mean, he's, he's a very class act, Ronnie is. and He really knows more than most people have ever forgotten about filmmaking. He and I were hired early this year to write a picture called Lassiter. It's a Tom Selleck vehicle. We were then summarily dismissed after 20 or 30 pages of a screenplay that we'd written. And I, I was offended for Ronnie's sake. I mean, it was the fact that, you know, it was what they call artistic differences. The people who were making the picture were not in agreement with us or vice versa about what flavor the script should take. We were doing it in a light vein, and apparently they wanted a more a tougher kind of story. You know, the idea of... of uh, just dismissing a guy like Ronnie Neem, who, who, who has forgotten more about making movies and entertaining people than most of these people have ever learned, is just, to me, offensive. I would gather from this that you enjoyed the way the movie turned out. I love the picture, to tell you the truth. Yeah. It, it was worth waiting for Walter to, to change his mind for six years, you know. It was a, a big success, too. Yeah, it was, uh, it was gratifying, particularly considering that it was not released by a studio. Everything about that picture was nice. I like the people on it. I like working with, with everybody on it. And, and the, the process of writing it, making it, editing it, seeing how people reacted to it. It was all just a great kick. Did any of your other non-Western books ever get filmed? Well, Relentless was sort of was a modern-day Western story. It's set in Arizona, but it's set in the present. That was filmed with Will Sampson, who was the... Cree Indian who played the chief and one flew over the cuckoo's nest. And it, it had a certain distinction in that I believe it was the first Hollywood film in which a Native American hero was played by a Native American actor who got top billing. I don't think that ever happened before. This year I had one called Legs, which was a musical about the Rockettes. Yeah, it was a television movie. movie it was the most expensive movie of the week ever filmed. Two-hour version of it. I wrote the story. Actually, I wrote the first version of the screenplay. The director then rewrote it and removed every word that I'd written. But the basis of the story, which simply had three girls vying for the one available vacancy in the line, was, was mine, you know. Uh, and I do have a credit on the picture, you know. It says, story by Ryan Garfield. But what's, what's on the screen is not what I wrote, but it was, it was fun, I must say. I got to go to Radio City and interview all the Rockettes, and, you know. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't the kind of job you would turn down. Also, I had always wanted to do a musical. I worked in, in almost all the art forms that I think of as being native to America. And that's the Western, the mystery, jazz, rock and roll. And I had never done a musical before, and it just seemed to, to fill a gap somewhere. You know? What have you done in jazz and rock and roll? I had a band. 
when I was in and just out of college, and we we cut a few records, uh, one of which was called I Can't Quit, and it got on the top 40 in 1959, oh. and we went and did American Bandstand called the Palisades. We were a quickly <laughs> forgotten bunch, believe me. Uh, what, what was the jazz? The same thing, the same group. We played sort of supper club jazz for our, you know, for our own amusement, and when that was what we could get paid for, but... You know, when when you cut records in those days, they didn't pay you for for nice, quiet things that that, that good musicians could do. You know? What did what did you do in the band? <laughs> I played several instruments. Everybody in the group did. It was our gimmick. Uh -huh. But basically, I was the lead guitar player and the bassist alternatively. The idea was everybody did everything, and I even learned to honk notes on, on the saxophone, which <laughs> I, I can't really play, but I learned how to how to do a couple of notes. You know. <laughs> You've missed one thing here. Now, you've done television in terms of made-for-TV movies and miniseries. How about uh, series television itself? Now, I've never done any. I, every once in a while, I get taken to lunch by somebody at some production company who's looking for ideas for pilots, and it's always a good way to get a free lunch. Uh, I, my mind doesn't work that way. It's, it's as We were talking earlier about the difficulties of writing a series, a series of novels, that is. And I find the same difficulty in, in trying to conceive of a series... Of, of television shows because there, there isn't any change that can take place in the characters. Well, there is, if you know, I think, for example, Rockford changed over the years and that sort of thing, but I don't think it was deliberate. How about comedy or slapstick comedy? I don't know. I love it when I see it. I mean, I, I, I was the guy that emptied the theater laughing so loud in Airplane, for example, but, but I just don't seem to have a talent for it. The, the kind of comedy I do is more likely to be on the quiet side, like Hopscotch, which did have a couple of, I thought they were wonderfully slapsticky scenes like shooting the house to pieces but that scene worked only partly because of the way it was written it mainly worked because a it was filmed very well and b ned Beatty's reactions were what made the scene really work and he was so funny in death wish and death sentence and in a number of your other books i think particularly of recoil mm -hmm. and to a lesser extent uh, what of terry coniston and in, in, in a still different sense, Hopscotch and Checkpoint Charlie, you keep raising essentially the same issue, which is a lot more complex than one word, but if we were to put it in one word, it would be vigilantism. And yet at the same time, you have said that this isn't really the solution. Uh, what then is, or, or what should we be doing? You're approaching this as if each of these books, or all of them collectively, were a philosophical treatise. They're not. Death Wish and Death Sentence, among them, are the only ones in which I really had any statement to make of a sociological kind. Uh, I think there's there's a fundamental difference between that and, and a story like Recoil, in which a character is being chased by mobsters and decides that the only way he can protect his family is, in a sense, to fight back. But he doesn't fight back on their terms. He doesn't kill anybody. He doesn't even try to maim anybody. I mean, he's not that sort of character. In the same but, but sense, he, Hopscotch, which is, again, about a character who is being chased and does not have access to uh, forces of organized law and order that might protect him, uh, again, is a sort of nonviolent escapade. It is not an exercise in explaining how one should turn about and kill the guys that are trying to kill you. And that's not what these stories are about. Maybe it's just because of my simple-minded approach to... to uh, to plotting, but I always find that a story contains a good deal more tension and a good deal more suspense if the main characters are isolated from those aspects of 
social structure that might otherwise protect them. Because one of the things that bothers me about a good deal of suspense fiction, you know, particularly the kind with, that contains a lot of shrieking ladies, is that those stories fall apart the minute you postulate that one of those people ought to go to the phone and call the cops. And they never do go to the phone and call the cops. And if they ever did, there wouldn't be any story. The ones that I write are, are probably motivated by the same kinds of impetus that motivates the Screaming Lady stories, but I'm trying to make them more plausible, that's all. And I try to put my characters in situations where they simply don't have access to the telephone to call the cops, uh, either because there's a, well, a good reason why the cops can't protect them or because they themselves are not in a position to, be, to call attention to themselves, like, for instance, the character in Hopscotch. What I'm saying is that my approach to these stories is, is not from the sociological point of view. I'm not thinking about them as advertisements for or against vigilantism. I'm thinking about them as stories about characters. And the fact that I tend to repeat myself in general structure, I think, is, is a weakness that all writers share. I try to avoid it as much as possible. I try not to write the same story every time. But I guess there are aspects of, of uh, structures that, that do tend to repeat themselves. The reason why Death Wish captured so much attention was not the fact that the story is that magnificent or that uh, the movie either was that magnificent, but as, as we were talking about earlier, it did somehow catch something that is in the consciousness of people in our well, society. Well, sure, we have all shared those fantasies. We still do. Uh, in fact, the, the season that I wrote Death Wish, there were at least three other writers I know of writing the same story. This can be taken as coincidence. If you like, I think it, can, it should be taken as evidence of the fact that that idea was in the air and that it did not require one individual like me, you know, to make it evident. The fact is I had the fastest publisher and my book came out about six months ahead of any of the others, but we weren't stealing from one another and we were all working at about the same time. One of the books I thought was, was really a terrific job. It was called Alice and Me and it was written by a writer under a pen name. The pen name was William Judson. It's very similar in structure to Death Wish, the difference being that the character in it is, is an outsider. He's not a New Yorker. He's visiting mm -hmm. New York. He's visiting his daughter, and she's mugged, and then we go on, you know, and he, he brings his kind of backwoods ways of, of dealing with these things to the city and, and ends up, you know, sniping at people from rooftops with his long rifle. But it's essentially the same story. And the motivation for the thing, in my mind, I think was, was, uh, was as strong, certainly, as it would have been in, in the mind of anybody seeing the movie or reading the book. I mean, I, I felt the way that character felt, just as an audience would. In fact, I wrote the book in the apartment where the character lives in the story. It's on West End Avenue in New York. And by the time I was halfway through that novel, I was so paranoid, I was afraid to walk across the street and buy <laughs> groceries. I'm not denying the attractiveness and the appeal of those ideas. But I think if you stop and think about them, you begin to realize that, that in practice, they don't work that well. And yet when it does happen in the real world, every so often we will see an item in the newspaper where the proprietor of a mom-and-pop grocery store confronted a burglar, uh, not a burglar, this would be a hold-up man in this yeah. case, yeah. you know, reaches under the counter and pulls out a weapon and offs the hold-up man. There's always a great cheer goes up. Sure, it's very understandable, too, but unfortunately what doesn't get so much publicity is the number of proprietors of those mom-and-pop shops who take out the gun to shoot the intruder and therefore either get shot or shoot themselves in the foot. Chances are, if you pull out a gun to defend yourself against an armed robber, you're going to be the one who ends up getting hurt. In some sense, 
a simple mugging, a robbery, a beating has, has become, I don't know, in, in some rough and tumble way, it's part of the game that we all play. It is not personal. It's a condition. You know, it's like a disease out there that we would like to find a way to eradicate. And making it personal somehow, to me, trivializes it. One of the things that, that bothered me very much about the film was the fact that the, the entire film is based on the motivation of rage in this character that is created by the fact that his wife and daughter are raped. That was not in the book. They're not raped. They're, oh. It's a simple mugging. In them. They're oh. beaten up. There's a significant difference in that to me because rape in the first place is something I don't like exploiting in, in that kind of fiction. In the second place, it's, it seemed just to put a whole new tone on, on the movie. And by personalizing it in the movie with that really awful rape sequence, I think a lot of the, the point of the story was destroyed. The film with Mr. T was never made. Brian Garfield's best novel, Wild Times, is currently out of print, though a Kindle edition is available for a low price. The miniseries of Wild Times and the musical Legs never came out on DVD and are unavailable for streaming. The original Death Wish and its sequels can be rented on Amazon, and Hopscotch is available free on Canopy. A remake of Death Wish came out in theaters in 2018, starring Bruce Willis, and promptly flopped. It is currently streaming on Epics. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews, either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. <laughs>